Welcome to the podcast of Christ Covenant Church, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in the township of Langley, British Columbia. My name is Gary Vanderveen, and I'm the senior pastor here. If you would like to know more about our congregation, please visit us online at www.langleychurch.org. Today, as most of you know, is the first week of Advent, which marks the beginning of a new church year, and for the next several weeks, I want to look at John's prologue, the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. We live in a day, not unlike any other time in history, where many fashion Jesus in their own image, and if we're honest, we are all tempted to do this. Uh, We all, at certain times, want a Jesus we can control, a Jesus we can manipulate, a Jesus who exists to serve us on our terms. You might remember that great uh, dialogue in the lion, uh, the witch, and the wardrobe that goes like this, Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is the one who lived, who died, who rose, who ascended into heaven for us and our salvation. He is the one who did all of this to make all things new. And he cannot be controlled. He cannot be manipulated. He cannot be put in a box. He gives himself to us as he is as he is, and we cannot control him. He gives himself to us as he is, and for this we ought to be thankful, for it is only as he is that there is hope for the human race. And so for the next several weeks, we want to see who this Jesus is. Way back... Long before I was born, in 1962, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, we do not know Jesus. And things have not changed that much. So this Advent season, we want to look at Jesus. The Jesus of Holy Scripture, the Jesus of the Gospels, the Jesus who reveals himself to us so that we might live. Now, before we look at these opening verses, I want to remind you of why John wrote his gospel. And you probably are familiar with his thesis statement or his purpose statement, which we find in John 20, 
verses 30 to 31. Here we discover John's agenda. Why does he write this gospel? What's his perf- purpose? What is he uh, aiming at? What is he, what is he seeking to accomplish? And he, and he tells us very clearly in verses 30 and 31 of, of the 20th chapter. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, signs which are not written in this book, but these signs, the signs that I have included in this book, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So why does John write this gospel? John writes this gospel so that you might believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. The anointed one who crushed the head of the serpent. The anointed one through whom all nations of the earth will be blessed. The anointed one who who has made, who, who is making, and who will make all things new. That you might believe Jesus is the anointed one in whom we have abundant life, eternal life, never-ending life. And so John's purpose is evangelistic. He wants people to believe in Jesus. He wants people to put their trust in Jesus. He, He wants people to put their hope in Jesus. But it's not simply evangelistic. It's not simply a book for those who have never heard the gospel, who have never heard of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is also instructional. He wants believers, those who already believe, he wants us to know Jesus more deeply. We believe and we must continue to believe. We need to be strengthened in our belief. We need to grow in our belief. We need more Jesus. We need to experience him more and more. We need to know him more and more. We need to live in him more and more. And so John writes this gospel not only to those who have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, But to us, we who have heard it, we who do believe. Now, before we look at these opening verses, I want to say one more thing. I want to read a brief quote to you from Tim Keller because this helps us understand uh, what John is doing, how John presents this gospel both to the Jew, or to the Greek, and to the Jew. And so Tim Keller, in his excellent book, Center Church, uh, refers to this idea of, uh, of what, what he refers to as contextualization. And he says to contextualize with balance and successfully reach people in a culture, we must both enter the culture sympathetically and respectfully. We need to have a point of contact. We need to to talk a language that the culture understands, that the culture relates to. But 
to contextualize properly, to contextualize biblically, is not only to, not simply to, to enter the culture and speak the language of the culture, but to also confront the culture where it contradicts biblical truth. And so we need to enter the culture and we need to confront the culture. Okay, that's what, that's what biblical contextualization is. Right? This might not always be the best word because some people use the word to contextualize simply to mean to, to speak the language of the culture, to actually accommodate the culture. But that's not biblical contextualization and that's not what Tim Keller is talking about. But let's look at at, at how John presents the gospel. He begins with this explosive truth in verse 1. In the beginning was the word. So how does John enter the culture of his day? What is the point of contact here? Well, for the Greek, John uses the word Word, logos. And this word, of course, is pregnant with meaning in the Greek and Roman culture. It's a point of contact. It's a word that secular, unbelieving, pagan pagan culture understood. It was a philosophy word. Heraclitus, of course, was a Greek philosopher famous for saying that you cannot step in the same river twice. And, and this was his, his way of, of saying that the universe is in constant flux, that, that it is always changing, that there is no stability, that there is no unity, that there is, there is nothing that, that holds the, the universe together. Now, Heraclitus wasn't stupid. He realized that the world is actually a little more complicated than that. He he recognized that if he stepped into the river today and he came back to that river tomorrow, there would still be that river. And yet he wrestled with how, how that can be because the water that is in the river today is not the same water that was there yesterday. And so he appealed to the Logos and impersonal, rational principle that held the world together. And Greek philosophy continued to argue over the the precise nature of the logos. But what's important for us to remember this morning is that in Greek philosophy, the logos was a principle. It was an abstraction. It was an idea. Yes, it was godlike in that it held everything together, that it provided unity, but the Logos was not a person. In the beginning was the Logos, and with these words, John reaches the Greeks. He speaks their language, he has their attention, they think. They may even think with these words that John is one of them. John has entered their culture. But John also writes to the Jews. In the beginning. Now, where in the world would the Jews have heard these words before? In the beginning. In the beginning, God. 
With these words, John hooks his gospel into the opening words of Scripture, into the opening verses of Genesis. In the beginning, God. And so for the Jew, the expectation is that John will reveal to them what God has done. In the beginning, in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so there is this expectation for the Jews that John is retelling the creation story. And the Jews, of course, were also familiar that God made all things by the word of his power. And so they are not surprised that John uses this word logos. We read, for example, in Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. And so John skillfully, brilliantly, cleverly writes in the language that both Jews and Greeks understood. This is the point of contact. He has entered their culture, if you will. And let me be very clear here. If John had stopped right there in the beginning was the Logos, both the Greeks and the Jews could read their own understanding into the sentence and assume that John was with them, that John was one of them. They could very easily, if John had stopped there, they could very easily not encounter the offense of the gospel. And it's important for us to realize this because when we speak contextually, there's always the possibility that our hearers will misunderstand, that our hearers will misinterpret, that our hearers will think that we're one of them. And this is why it's so vitally important, as Tim Keller reminds us, that we don't simply enter the culture, but we confront the culture. And this is exactly what John does. He confronts the Greeks by telling them that the Logos is a person, not a logical principle. He confronts the Jews by insisting that the word is distinct from God, and yet he is God. He confronts the Jews by by telling them that there is diversity within the Godhead. The word was with God. Well, how many gods are there? There's one God. The Jews knew this, but they made no distinctions within the Godhead. But John tells us that the word was with God. He is distinct from God. In fact, you could translate this, the word was toward God or face to face with God or as John puts it in verse 18 he is in the bosom of God or he's at the father's side or he is the one who declares the father he exegetes the father he is the one who makes the father known 
So the word is with the Father. He is with God. And the word was God. Not, not simply is he with God, he is God. And so here we have a hint in the opening verse here of the glorious doctrine of the Trinity. The word is fully God. And yet, there is one God. The Father is God. The Word is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And yet, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit. And as John tells us in verse 14, it is the Word, not the Father, not the Holy Spirit. It is the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, the question, of course, is why does this all matter? Why, why is this important? Why does John begin his gospel this way? Well, the answer, of course, is provided for us in that thesis statement, that purpose statement that we read in John 20. John will tell us about all sorts of signs that Jesus did in the presence of his disciples. John will reveal to us the signs and wonders that Jesus performed. And why will John tell us about these signs? Because he wants us to put our hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants us to know and acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. And he wants us to put our hope in him. He wants us to put our trust in him. And he wants us to know who he is. And so John begins his gospel in no uncertain terms. He tells us exactly who Jesus is. He is the Word who was with the Father and who is God himself. Together with the Father, he is God. But John isn't finished there. He he presses on. He tells us more. Right? The Jews are expecting, from what I've already said, right? they're expecting in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And now John tells us that the Word was there and that the Word actually created all things. And so he confronts the Jews as well. And all things, verse 3, were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The, create, the word is the creator of all things. Every blade of grass, every planet in the heavens, every grain of sand on the seashore, everything is made by him. And Paul, of course, picks up on this in Colossians 1, where he says that he created all things, both in heaven and on earth, both visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, authorities, rulers, all things were created through him and for him. And in him was life, verse 4. And in his gospel, right, as we pay attention to John, in his gospel, he tells us 
that life is not simply something that is to be measured by time, right? John or Bob lived from 1886 to 1947. Life is not something that, that is not simply something that is measured in time, but there's a certain quality about the life that we have in Jesus Christ. You will remember in John 10, for example, that Jesus speaks about abundant life in him, full life in him, life at its very best. And John wants us to know that the word was with God, that the word is God, that the word has made all things, and that the word is life. He exists from eternity to eternity. There was never a time when he did not exist. There never will be a time when he will not exist. He has always existed, and he has qualitative life. He's the fullness of life. And so when you connect this with John's purpose statement in John 20, we can only come, it seems to me, to one conclusion. And that is this, that the eternal word, the second person of the blessed trinity, the one who was with God and is God, loves us so much that he became flesh, verse 14, so that we might have his life. And this doesn't mean, of course, that we will become God. We will not become the Word. But it means that God in and through the Word has made us to enjoy Him, to participate in His life, to partake of His life, to enjoy the abundant life that He Himself enjoys. Do you want life to the fullest? Do you want the best possible life? Do you want pleasures forevermore? Do you want joy and fellowship and significance? Well, don't we all? Well, John writes this gospel to tell us that we can have abundant life, the fullness of life in Jesus. And this Jesus of whom John writes is the word of God who is with God and who is God and in him is life. And I tell you this morning, I would rather know this Jesus than anyone else. I would rather have fellowship with this Jesus than anyone else. I would rather live with this Jesus and have life in him than any other life. This Jesus, whom John proclaims, is the hope, the only hope 
of the world. Let us come to him and find our life in him. Show the world of you.